Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. So before I introduce my guest, I just want to talk about a few things that I've been watching or listening to in quarantine. I'm going to try to do this, not every podcast, but when I feel like I want to share some stuff with you guys, I know that I do my quarterly roundup with Brian Samuels on content, but I thought this would be, especially in quarantine, great for some people who are just wondering what to watch or want new stuff. So just a few suggestions if you are interested. I am loving The Last Dance on ESPN, the story of the Chicago Bulls, the 97-98 season. It's really great. It's so much fun to see Michael Jordan in action. He is truly a god. And if, trust me, I'm not a big sports person at all, but this is just great storytelling and an amazing, just a beautiful, wonderful documentary. I highly recommend it. It's on Sunday nights. They're dropping two a week, and I'm sure you can watch it on streaming as well. I highly recommend Kate Casey, my friend and fellow podcaster. She does her podcast twice a week. I think it was last week she interviewed Marcus Limonis, who is the host of The Prophet. It's just a really good interview. They go super deep. Marcus really opens up. And it also really made me want to watch The Prophet. So good job, Marcus. And thank you for being so open about your life. Um, a documentary that I recommend that I bought, well, actually I did like a free trial on stars for a week so I could watch it. It's called Where's My Roy Cohn? And it's about Roy Cohn. If you're not familiar with him, he was a lawyer for the mob, pretty famous during the McCarthy era. And then of course went on to become Donald Trump's lawyer because of course it's very well done. It's very illuminating. And ultimately I think explains a lot about the current occupant in the White House. And then lastly, for some comic relief, because God knows we need that, I really enjoyed Black AF, which is Kenya Barris's new series on Netflix. It's kind of like his version of Curb Your Enthusiasm, um, but, you know, obviously with a different perspective. It's not perfect. There's some episodes that are not great, but I especially loved episode five. I think there's a few scenes in there that will go down in the book. So I recommend it. I, th I think it's worth a watch. Okay, and now to our guest. So today on the podcast, I have Alex Piper. Alex is the head of Unscripted at YouTube Originals. Since joining YouTube, Alex and his Unscripted team have launched a lot of projects that have gotten hundreds of millions of YouTube users globally watching, like Justin Bieber's Seasons, Coldplay Live from Jordan, Taylor Swift Lover's Lounge, and Kevin Hart, What the Fit. Before YouTube, Alex worked at Fox and Asylum Entertainment. We talk all about his career, how he kind of started out accidentally in the business through sports, and then the Olympics, which is really cool. He just is a great storyteller. And he even gives us a peek behind the curtain on how the Justin Bieber documentary series, it almost didn't even happen. So enjoy Alex Piper. So this is a first for me. I am doing my first, first podcast via Zoom. So the people that I've Zoomed for the podcast so far during quarantine have been people I all know, but I'm meeting you, Alex Piper, live on <laughs> Zoom. <laughs> To do the nice interview that you. we've had scheduled. And nice to meet you too. <laughs> so we scheduled this a while back yeah. um, through our friend Ben Rellis from YouTube. Yeah. And we're, we were supposed to meet in person at your beautiful offices. And here we are. Now I can't get into those offices. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not even with a security card. Full lockout, yes. I bet. So where are you holed up now? Looks like you're cozy. I'm in my house in Encino. Oh, you're in uh, Encino. So the commute is much better. 
Right. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it's a little bit louder around here than it is in the offices because I have a 10-year-old and a five-year-old running around all day. Now, are they being homeschooled? What's the situation? The 10-year-old is being homeschooled. Yeah. Or not homeschooled by us, but, you know, virtual classroom. Um, and then the five-year-old goes to a, uh, or went, I should say, went to a, to like a pre-K or a, you know, um, but it's been kind of closed down for the year. So she'll be starting up kindergarten in September. It's a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's dealing with it in their own way. So I, I feel terrible complaining about it because so many people I know have it, you know, far more difficult than I do. Right. And did YouTube shut down pretty much the same time that everybody else did, like around that March 12th date? Yeah, I would say it was probably just before that, that it started to become kind of voluntary and and recommended. And then all of a sudden it kind of ramped up to mandatory pretty quickly. Um, but as you know, like a lot of um, kind of the goal you just is to have the flexibility to work from home. So, you know, the technology was certainly there for people to work from home all along, ever since I started at YouTube a year ago. Um, if you wanted to take a day and work from home or you had something going on, it was, you know, it was a very open environment to, to be able to do that. So the transition from us all coming into the office to us all working remotely probably was a little bit easier for us than it was for others. Now, what about production? How has that been affected? Yeah, I mean, uh, we've had to put a pin in a lot of the things that we were doing. Um, as you can imagine, a lot of the stuff that was in pre-production that was about to launch production, we've had to pause some of the stuff that was in production. Um, we either had to find, um, you know, safe ways to finish it out if it was close to finishing it out um, or we had to put a pin in it um, temporarily and we don't exactly know when that's going to come back um, and then um, you know we've obviously looked at you know different ways to get these shows back going but in an environment where uh, everybody where health and safety matters the most um, you know we, we just never want one of our partners who we care deeply about to ever feel like they're being pressured into doing something because they have to hit a deadline or because you know we're expecting something out of them um, and so we're trying to give them the resources possible um, to pivot if pivoting is what the right thing to do is or if we just need to put a pause in it we're trying to do we're trying to be the best partner that we can in order to keep staff on and for as long as we can I think it's tough. You know, when you first start this out, you think it's going to be a couple weeks, right? You're looking at four to six weeks, something like that. Now you're potentially looking at something that's far different. So how to define being a good partner in a time like this is, is challenging, right? Because um, we want to build long-term partnerships, not just ones that get us through the summer. We want uh, people to feel like we care about them and they want to keep bringing their business back to us. Um, so finding that, that balance between doing what we need to do um, to get shows on the air, um, and but also to remain a good partner is one that we're kind of constantly looking over and trying to make sure that we're doing the right way. So interesting because for YouTube, I mean, it by is by design sort of that homegrown, you know, self-shot, gritty content that you people have been making from home for years and years. But obviously, yeah. as it's evolved and with you at the helm, it's turned into, at least the original side, has turned into this premium, really beautiful content that you would see at you know any kind of network or premium shop. So it, it kind of has evolved past like this being the perfect time to be producing YouTube content. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that. Um, 
I think that, yeah, the, the backbone, the DNA of, of YouTube is user-generated content, right? Is people turning a camera or a phone on themselves and saying, I have a story I want to tell. Um, I have something I want to share. And so in a lot of ways, YouTube is still very available to do that, right? And people, our creator community, who, you know, I think are among the best in the absolute world, of course, um, they're still creating content. Um, but some of the top creators, as you can imagine, um, they're doing more than just turning a camera on themselves or turning a phone on themselves in the past, you know, pre-COVID. Uh, they had real production value. They had teams that were starting to work with them, right? This, this is a big business for, for a lot of them. And so they take it very seriously. And you can see it in the production values of a lot of our top creators. The shows that they're doing are no different in production value than some of the shows we're doing. I mean, they're just doing a fantastic job. And the technology has allowed them to keep upgrading and upgrading and upgrading. So uh, some of them, have had to kind of go back to the old school techniques um, because they can't bring in, you know, their four crew members and all of that to do some of these things. And so they've had to kind of go back to that phone or that one camera or those two cameras and remote editing and some of the things that were very much the DNA of what a YouTube video looked like five, 10 years ago. In a lot of ways, we're still constructed. The, the site is still constructed in such a way where we can be a great launch pad for stuff like that. And all we say to our creators, whether they're working with us on a YouTube original or whether they're just doing things on their own, is be safe, right? Be smart, be safe, and tell us how we can help. Um, I think that there are ways where we can offer them technical support or things like that because they still have big ambitions, um, but they don't know exactly how to pull it off without the help of some other people. And that's really what YouTube originals is always provided for our creator community. You know, our creators don't need our ideas. They're some of um, the smartest and uh, most creative people in the world. And so they have huge ideas, but sometimes they don't know how to execute against it. Or sometimes they've just gotten into such a cadence with their own shows that they can't really go work on some side project. And that's where we can sweep in and say, okay, how can we be of help? What are your passions and how can we help to stoke them for you um, and provide the production support, the technical support, and of course the finances that may be necessary in order for you to do that. And that wasn't always what YouTube Originals could offer because in some ways during YouTube Red and during YouTube Premium, when a lot of the content that we were making was going to sit behind the paywall, we were making content differently, right? We were a lot of scripted content we were making, et cetera. It was to try and get subscribers to sign up to this SVOD that was sitting on top of YouTube. But when they made the move um, about a year and a half ago to move all of that original content in front of the paywall, and then really to start to shift away from scripted content and into unscripted content, it allowed us to more perfectly align with our creator community and support them in a way that YouTube originals hadn't really been supporting them for a couple of years before that. And that's when I came on board. So I, I just feel really fortunate to be able to work so directly with those creators. And then when we get into this sort of environment, this COVID environment, um, we can have the exact same conversations with the creators we were going to have beforehand in terms of how can we help you. And oftentimes it's not about, oh, give me this big fee, you know, or, or, or I want to do this crazy stunt. It's more like I just need the technical support of how do I bring a couple cameras into a virtual control room? I, I just don't know how to do that. And so that's a lot of the calls that we're taking right now is how can we support people through things like that? Interesting. I, by the way, I per, on a personal note, I just saw an excellent documentary on YouTube, the the Backstreet Boys. I mean, sorry, the the Lou Pearlman story. Yes. Yeah. Boy Band Con. Yes. Now, was that under you? Was that? That, that, that preceded me. Yeah. Okay. Very, it was very, very well very, done. Very, yes. Very well really done. good. And then my friend Shane Nickerson made the Do Perfect documentary. I know you yes. had your hands in that. Yes. 
I yeah, still need really to watch that. We're looking forward to launching that one. Obviously, those guys are so great. They were on Fallon last week, and oh, they're wow. just such a unique group um, of guys. And uh, it was great because that's a that's a great example of something that we do where we go to do perfect. They probably we need them more than they need us, right? In a lot of ways, they already have just a huge subscriber base and. Uh, rabid fans that are coming back for whatever video they do, whether it's a trick shot or whether it's a Rube Goldberg or whether it's one of the great um, sort of set pieces that they do. Um, they've, they've really transcended just trick shots and really just become great comedians in a lot of ways. Um, and they're kind of um, OGs on YouTube, right? They started, uh, what, 10, 11 years ago, um, just posting something on YouTube and, and really kind of rode that overnight sensation, which was pretty amazing that they've been able to keep it alive for as long as they have, because a lot of people become an overnight sensation on YouTube, but then, you know, six, 18 months later, you're not seeing much from them. These guys have been able to build a business out of it. And it's because it's so true to who they are. And so the question is, we've seen you as uh, a trick shot artist. We've seen you as a comedian. We've seen you as a group, but we don't really know that much about you probably, right? How can we go six or how can we go three feet deep instead of six inches deep with you? And so that was the conversation we had with them around the documentary. And they were so open to, hey, you know what? You're right. People probably don't know much about our home lives. People don't know much. And, and why don't we frame it around this tour that we're going on, which they went on last summer, which they had hopes to do uh, again this summer. But I think obviously everything's getting thrown into whack. Um, but there was the first time they had really kind of gone out and seen their fans in person week after week after week. And when you're a trick shot artist and you can do a thousand takes of something right before you get the one that you post up to do it live in front of a crowd, that's, there's a different stress and anxiety to that. And so we were able to be along for the ride with them. And Shane had such a good relationship with them. So could really get them to be comfortable with him. And I think he and the entire super jacket team did such a great job of pulling that together. So I'm excited for the world to see it. Yeah, same. I can't wait. And then the Justin Bieber show that it, you broke all kinds of records, massive hit. So tell tell us, were you there for the genesis of that? Yeah. Um, so yeah, talk about that because it's it's pretty amazing what happened with that. Yeah, you know, before I got there, there had been some conversations with um, Scooter Brown Project. Scooter being, of course, Justin's manager about doing kind of a larger overall deal with Scooter. And in that overall deal, there was there was the idea that we would try to do something with Justin, right? We didn't exactly know what it was going to be, but we wanted to do something with Justin. Um, he had been coming out of a really interesting time in his life, right? Um, where he had kind of put music aside. He had been dealing with some personal issues and um, he was now just starting to kind of get back to a place where he was thinking about ramping back up into the music. And so as a storyteller, that's a great place to enter someone's story, right? Because they've been through a lot of different things. They've gone through kind of the washer and dryer of the entertainment world. They're coming at the others and they're trying to know what they next and whether they can kind of reach that, that, that pinnacle again. And so, you know, Scooter obviously has amazing access there. And originally what we were going to do was a big, long documentary, um, kind of a, you know, the next documentary in that series of documentaries that he's been doing, right, where they've all been hits. Um, and it was going to do this dive into what the last few years of his life were going to look like and then kind of him getting back yeah, his groove. But I think the 90 minute doc, although we do some really strong 90 minute docs, including the one you just talked about with Dude Perfect, um, in some ways it's not exactly how YouTube uh, viewers take in their material, you know? 
uh, when I think about a, a 90 minute experience, you think about a film, right? And you think about sitting in a theater and it's, and it's experience you're taking in with a lot of people. Um, and even if there's boring parts of a film that you're watching either on your TV or in a theater or whatever it is, you don't really get up. You don't grab the remote because there's normally people in the room experiencing it with you. Um, and so even if you're a little bit bored, you're, you're assuming that the other people in the room are not, right? And so you kind of give it a little bit more of a leash, especially because in a lot of cases you paid for a ticket. Um, that's not the experience on YouTube. And it's a very singular experience, right? You're either watching on your your phone or your tablet or your TV. And a lot of times you're watching by yourself. So the second something isn't working for you, you just move on to something else. I mean, the whole YouTube page is actually built uh, to try and get you to click on something else, right? So um, we always talk about how do we get that right balance between content that is long enough and substantial enough for it to feel premium, but where that it's not so long that we're giving you opportunities where you're not going to see it through to the end. And so Long story short, we had some conversation. The, the, the deal had actually, in many ways, fallen apart. Um, we had announced that we were doing something with Justin at our Brandcast, which was in early May of 2019. Um, only really about six or eight weeks later, the deal had kind of fallen apart. And it was looking like we weren't going to be able to get anything done with Justin. And we were having conversations with Scooter about what this was going to look like. But everything had kind of been put on the shelf. And then at the tail end of July, um, Scooter and Scott Manson, who works at Scott, uh, SB Projects as well, um, and I went out to dinner. And he started showing me some clips of some footage of Justin inside of um, a recording studio that just a, a friend who was a photographer had been filming. And he, he was like, look at this stuff. Doesn't this look like something we should do? And he was right. I mean, he was absolutely right. It was raw. What was it that he was showing you? It was Justin by himself at a piano in a recording studio, just playing and singing and trying to come up with lyrics to a, to a melody. And um, it was just very, very raw. And I loved it, right? Because I think that the, the main ingredient, the number one ingredient of any successful YouTube show is authenticity, right? It should feel first person. Uh, it should feel like whatever wall between the viewer and the, and the voice of the person has been broken down. Right. So it should just feel like it's Justin speaking directly to you. Like we're not putting anything there. It's not that we plug Justin into a YouTube show. It should just be that it's Justin's YouTube show. And this felt like that. It just felt like so um, much like the way when I close my eyes, I envision a YouTube original show to look like. And so I said, well, what can, how can we do something here? And so Scooter and Scott sent us over some creative. And even they would say the first creative wasn't, wasn't there. It really wasn't a thing. Um, but we kept working on it with them. And by kind of late August, early September, we, we realized there could be something here, but instead of it being a 90 minute doc, let's do it as 10, 10 minute episodes, right? So you're getting the same duration of total, but just the way it's gonna be doled out, I think would be something that the YouTube community would enjoy more. Um, and it will allow us to kind of pivot uh, differently and follow the story in a more unique way. And um, listen, there was a lot of back and forth over the fall and the winter about this one. Um, it, it was not the easiest deal. There were nights where I went to bed thinking it was not going to happen. There were nights when I went to bed really excited about what it was too. Um, it, it, was, it was a pretty manic sort of couple months as we were trying to put this together. But really, was it because they were trying to bring it other places too, or you just 
couldn't agree on the money? Like, what was the big deal with it? You no, know, the, the the money was a, was basically agreed to, but you had to get Justin to sign off, right? A deal isn't a deal Got until it. Justin's signature is on a piece of paper. And Justin kind of wasn't ready to sign quite yet. And so you were working in earnest on something to the point where I was seeing rough cuts of some of the early episodes, but we didn't have a signed deal. Wow. So that's a very dangerous place to be because yes. you're, you're watching these episodes and you're really liking them and you're giving notes on them, right? You're actually helping the episodes get better. Right. You know, at the same time, they're not officially yours. Uh, you know, you're like test driving a car you haven't bought yet um, and you have demo love on it. You're just loving everything about it and you're telling the dealership how much you love it and they know they now have you, right? Because right. They the leverage has them. been lost. Exactly. So there was a little bit of that that went back and forth. I remember I was in uh, Nashville for the launch of our Johnny Cash documentary uh, in the fall. And I got a call, I got a call from Scooter and I was in the middle of another call. So I just, you know, um, hit decline because I was going to call him back. And then I got a text from him one second later saying, call me urgent ASAP. And I was like, this is just never good when you get that text from Scooter. (laughs) Um, And I called him up and we had a very challenging conversation about what was going to happen with this project and whether it was going to stay on YouTube, whether it was going to go somewhere else, what it was going to look like, all of those things. And, and while, um, I wish we didn't have that conversation. I, while I wish it was just, it had been worked out. I give a lot of credit to Scooter and to Scott Manson, um, and Allison and everybody over there at SB projects. Cause I think ultimately they knew that the best home for it was YouTube. Um, but, but they obviously had a fiduciary responsibility to their client and trying to figure out how to get the best deal for them and how to, get all of the different bells and whistles that he was looking for. And of course, I actually give a ton of credit to Robert Kinsel and Suzanne Daniels and everybody at YouTube because they had to be patient through all that. There were so many opportunities where either Scooter or YouTube could just go, you know what, this isn't worth it. Let's just walk away. But I think in our hearts, we knew that this was the right project at the right time and we were the right place for it. Um, And so Michael Ratner came on board to, to help direct those episodes from OBB Productions and he did a fantastic job. Um, with that. And I don't think we would have gotten the show that we got if it wasn't for him stepping into the void there and, and really filling that out from a storytelling perspective. But when you think about what that show is, it's not just a celebrity show, right? A lot of people can just go and give money to a celebrity to go do a show. And we're seeing that a lot across a lot of different platforms, right? That show is very personal. It's about his depression. It's about his addictions. It's about love, his love of Haley, his love of music. It's about um, what happens when you've reached the top um, and then you get pulled down? How do you get back up there? A lot of these things actually resonate and are relatable to a big global YouTube audience, right? And the fact that Justin was willing to be vulnerable enough to touch on that, to allow us to be there at his wedding, to allow us to go back home with him, um, to, to allow us into his depression and to some of his OCD and some of the things that he's dealing with. I mean, Uh, you don't see a star of his caliber often really open it up that way. And that to me is what ultimately makes this feel like a YouTube original, because if we just gave him money and we just shot him in the studio for 10 episodes while he, you know, tried to make music, I think the uh, audience would have been pretty bored and pretty let down. Um, But because we tried to squeeze the orange for as much juice as possible. And because he was willing to share, he was at a point in his life where he was willing to share I think that this show resonates and I, I haven't gotten more outreach about a show that I've ever done probably in my career than this one. Um, and I think it's because people kept watching more and more because there was new layers of the onion that were getting peeled off. And, and um, I've had a lot of talent 
really big names come to us and say, I want my version of that. I want to do that wow. with you. And I think that that's really exciting, right? I had, um, you know, a head of one of the labels, uh, music labels come to me, sit in my office, you know, certainly didn't have to sit in my office. Um, they're much bigger than I am and say, how do we do more stuff like this with you? Like we want our artists in shows like that. And so that means that it resonated. That means that it stood out. And so I think when we will talk about doing things with these public figures, as we would call them or celebrities as everybody else would call them, um, it's always a balance of like, yeah, it'd be great to do something with a celebrity, but what are we actually going to be able to access from them during the time we're with them? That's going to make it feel, um, substantial. It's going to make it feel worthwhile. I think that's a real key uh, to every discussion we have about, um, big celeb projects from now on. That makes a lot of sense. I wonder if his reluctance to sign and all that back and forth, was it because he was nervous about mm-hmm. everything that would be shown for the first time in that big way? hundred percent. Yeah. He wanted to see the rough cuts of these shows. He didn't want to sign off on these things and not feel like he had, you know, some sort of, uh, control over, you know, his image. I mean, he, this is a scary thing, right? Yeah. I mean, this, this is a very scary thing that he did. And that's why I give him so much credit for doing it. Um, and I give Scooter and, and Michael Ratner and those, and both of their teams, a lot of credit for, for helping create a space that was safe enough for him to say the things that he did. We have, uh, we have a couple more episodes that are planned to come out here in October of 2020, um, from that Justin Bieber seasons, um, just a little special. I can't get into the details of it, but I think it's going to be, um, really, really powerful. Um, and a, and a, and a great button to an amazing year with Justin. I think that that's a really good model and proof of concept, if you will, that you have all these people that have come to you since the Justin success, because when these big celebrities who you think, you know, or you may know, or you have an opinion about them, open up their lives. I look at the Kevin Hart series on Netflix, the mm-hmm. Hillary documentary on Hulu, yep. when they're really vulnerable and they really are willing to show you the warts and all it pays off. People want to see that. So I think all of, you know, we've spent, from the early days of Hollywood, right? Publicists mm-hmm. have spent so much time tightly guarding these images of the celebrities so the public will feel a certain way about them. But actually the opposite is true. The more vulnerable, more relatable, especially now even with quarantine and a lot of these celebs doing their own IGs, their own YouTube stuff. Mm-hmm. I think either you're going to connect with them or maybe you'll hate them, but at least you'll feel something toward them in a way where you feel like you're getting something authentic. So that makes yeah, sense. I, I think that part of the reason that was able to work with Justin is because Scooter has such a deep relationship with him that goes back so far. So Scooter is able to say that to him and Justin can trust him. Right. And Scooter's not concerned that if one bad thing happens during the show or one bad piece of media comes out about it, that all of a sudden Justin's going to say, all right, you're fired. Right. Right. A lot of the publicists don't have that deep relationship and they don't, they haven't completely built up all that trust. And they're a little bit concerned that if something goes wrong, I'm going to be the one to blame and I'm going to lose my job for it. And I totally understand that. Um, because I think there's a certain cover your ass that's involved in a lot of these things that we do. Um, but I, I think you're absolutely right. I think the most powerful stuff is the most real stuff. And, uh, that's why I'm so excited to work at YouTube, because if you think about the whole backbone of this place, it's built on people being so real and being so authentic and, and that that wall being torn down between their voice and the viewer. And so that was certainly true around Justin. When you look at the comments, right, there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of comments against these episodes, which of course means that people are engaged. Um, the comments are amazing. And there was a 96% like to dislike ratio. Like wow. 
96% likes and 4% dislikes across the series. Um, so it's just, it's, it's pretty amazing. And you got hundreds and hundreds of millions of people because YouTube is a global platform. There's 2 billion unique users monthly on YouTube, 2 billion. Um, so if you're trying to get your story out there and you're trying to share something personal, there's no better place to do it than YouTube. So does it work like it does, let's say like with podcasts where mm -hmm. it's your, or a movie, I guess, where your uh, the upside is dependent on the amount of downloads, like that's factored into the financial deal. I know you can't talk specifics, but is there a benefit then to how many downloads? Not in our deals, not in the okay. YouTube originals deals. Obviously there's a, you know, what YouTube is really for these creators is a business right? Um, they're not just putting videos up for their health, right? They're making money off of them because there's a revenue share um, on their videos, a 55-45 split where they can share in that revenue. Um, when you do a YouTube original, you pass on that revenue share Got until it. we recouped our costs, right? And then the revenue share comes on. So there is, but, but what you see more than anything is, for instance, when we when we first launched Justin, he, I think, had 46 or 47 million subscribers, which is a ton of subscribers, obviously. But now he's at 53 million subscribers, right? Doesn't he have so, the most of any? I read that today. Uh, no, no. There are people oh. with more subscribers than him. Uh, maybe of a musical artist. I don't know. Maybe, but, okay. uh, you know, a lot of our gamers have PewDiePie, I think, has right. over 100 million <laughs> subscribers. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's um, the businesses that these people have made. And um, anyway, so but you can see a growth in your subscriber base based on doing a YouTube original. And oftentimes when we go back and we look at all these YouTube originals across um, the years, you're seeing a 10 to 15% jump in your subscribers right away within the first say 90 days of doing a YouTube original. And since this is a business for you, the more subscribers you have, the more people you can monetize against. So there's a real benefit to doing a YouTube original for a lot of these people who are engaged with the platform. Interesting. So let's talk a little bit about your career. So you started as a producer. Mm -hmm. Did you know what you wanted to be when you were growing up, when you were in college? Like, how did it evolve? Uh, well, how far back do you want me to go? How much well, time Where are you from? Um, I'm from Philadelphia. Oh, you um, are? Oh, that's right. Absolutely. Got it. Where um, in Philly? Uh, I grew up in Lower Marion until I was about 12. And then we moved up to Langhorne, which is in Lower Bucks County, uh, until I went off to college. Um, Which I town to, in Lower Marion? I got to go deep because we lived in Bella Kenwood. I lived in Marion. Yeah, I lived okay. in Marion Station. Yeah, I went to Kenwood Elementary School. Uh, it was uh, across the street from my house, literally. It was amazing. It was so funny. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I went to a school where in eighth grade, they had this thing called the EGOP, the Eighth Grade Observation Project, right? And so it was basically career day. Just spend a day with somebody in a career that you're interested in. And... I was just kind of a jerk kid at the time. And so I wasn't really thinking of like, oh, what do I want to do in my life? I didn't spend even probably five seconds thinking about that. All I thought about was who's going to get me to the Phillies game that night. Like, <laughs> if I follow somebody, they, they take me to the Phillies game that night. Well, that will be a win for me. So I started writing letters to the, like, the local sports reporters, like the ones who would go and do their stand up from at the time Veteran Stadium. And I was just like, I just want to go on this trip. And so one of them, <laughs> This guy, Yuki Washington from KYW Channel 3 in Philly said yes. And I was like, oh, great. So I went down there that afternoon and I was like, oh, this is going to be so great. I'm just going to spend the day with this guy and I'm going to go to the Phillies game and I'll come home. And, you know, I was 13, 14 years old and that's exactly what happened. But during the day, 
I realized there were these other guys who were working there and they were building scripts and they were building scoreboards and graphics and editing pieces together. And I was like, who are these guys? Like, I thought Yuki just did everything. And the truth is, is of course, they were just the sports producers um, at KYW. And I was like, well, wait a minute. So you don't have to be on camera. You can be involved in all of this and have your fingerprints on all of this. And you don't actually have to like hold a microphone or comb your hair. Like that sounds great. <laughs> Um, so I started to get interested in, in doing that all of a sudden. And so after I had left that day, I started writing, you know, thank you notes to everybody. Tom Stathakis was the sports director at the time and a couple of the other producers, Jim Ruling, Jim Cotty, they were working there. So I wrote them all notes and this was back pre-email and everything like that. You couldn't, so you're waiting on somebody to just write you right. back. Right? Um, and Tom actually wrote me a very nice note, but he made one big mistake in his note. At the end of it, he said, stay in touch. <laughs> now, okay. Uh, I'm going to stay in touch. I was that 14 year old kid. who was like, I'm going to take you literally. So I would write him notes. You know, I would see something on the telecast. I'd say, Oh, that was really great. Or whatever it was. I was a total nerd about it. Um, and I wanted to be an intern there. So I would ask him, you know, could I be an intern? And he said, well, the only internships we offer are for college credit and you're, you're not even in high school. Um, so I just stayed in touch with him. And finally he said, all right, I'll tell you what, come in on Sundays. Nobody's here. Nobody will know that you're here. Uh, we do this show called Sports Wrap. It's at 1135 after the local news that wraps up kind of the weekend in sports. And you can help us on that. And I said, awesome. Of course, I wasn't even old enough to drive. So my dad <laughs> would drive me down um, town where KYW was located and he would drop me off and I would stay there until midnight and then he would come and pick me up. It was, it was crazy uh, now that I think about it. Uh, big props to my dad. Um, so I would start working there every Sunday. And then as I got older and I actually did get a car, I started to go on Saturdays and Sundays. And I was there enough that everybody there kind of knew me and no one really cared that I wasn't there for college credit. So I could kind of come and go as I pleased. Um, so I'd work at a sporting goods store during the day and then I would go there at night and I was just having a great life. And then they started to kind of send me out on things like, oh, we need to go do a live shot here. Let, you know, Piper will go do it, you know, whatever it was. And so I... Um, when I was a senior in high school, I had good enough grades that I could actually go and do a, a formal internship somewhere. And of course, there was no other place I was going to do my formal internship. So I went there. So now I was working there Monday through Friday and on Sundays. Um, I was there more than the actual producers were. And now everybody knew me. I was <laughs> editing pieces and I was just doing whatever. And it was really fun. And so at that point, I was like, I'm definitely going to go to college for this. And this is definitely what we do with it. And I'm, I'm going to graduate college. I'm going to come back to Philadelphia. I'm going to work right here for the, my whole life. Like that was my big plan. And uh, two of the producers who um, worked there had gone to Syracuse. And I said, well, my sister went to Syracuse. I love Syracuse. I'm going to go to Syracuse then. So I went to Syracuse um, thinking I was going to become a broadcast journalism major and I was going to come back and work there. Um, and it didn't quite work out that way. Uh, I went to Syracuse. I didn't, I took, you know, the COM 107s and all the basic classes there, but didn't really love it. Maybe because I had actually been doing it for a couple of years. Um, and it was just right, already five years ahead. I was a little bit ahead. I don't know five years, but I was a little <laughs> bit ahead. And I was also probably an angsty kid who just was thinking I was better than everyone at the time or whatever it was. So I had some, um, I took some crazy classes while I was there because I figured, all right, I'm a college. I, I do know what I want to do when I get out of college. So why don't I just take crazy classes? I was taking like politics of sexually transmitted diseases, and <laughs> all of these weird classes. Um, and then after my sophomore year, going into junior year, they had said, you have to pick a major. I said, what do I have the most credits in? They said, sociology. I said, great. 
that's my major. Thank you very much. And I ended up being a sociology major and graduating from Maxwell School up there. Um, and then after that, a couple of my friends were moving to Boston for the summer because they were coming back for their, one had a fifth year in architecture and one had a graduate year. And I was like, oh, I'll just live with them for the summer and then I'll figure out what I want to do with the rest of my life. And I just started doing nothing in Boston. Like I would just wake up in the morning, whenever that was, 11, you know, <laughs> I would go play basketball for an hour. I'd go get a, a case of beer and just start drinking until they came home. It was a pretty <laughs> ugly experience, basically. Um, but one of these places I had interned for while I was in college was a small little production company called Lou Rita Productions that was run out of the basement of a furniture warehouse in Easton, Pennsylvania. And they did uh, a lot of material for the History Channel and A&E, like a lot of A&E biographies, a lot of uh, History Channel films. Yeah, I've heard of them. Doing that sort of stuff. And this guy, Sammy Jackson, was their lead producer, and I had interned with him for a little while. So he called me up on the phone and he said, Alex, we're doing this big two-hour History Channel special called Doomsday Flu about the 1918 outbreak of influenza. Weird. And, I know, isn't that crazy? Right now, and yes. Exactly. And so I want you to come down and help me out with it. Would you be willing to come? I can pay you $500 under the table a week. And I was like, no, I'm okay. Like I was, <laughs> I, was, I was so foolish that I was like, no, I'm having fun here in Boston. I never even thought like, oh my God, at some point I'm going to need to get a job. So he called me back a week later and thank God he did. He called me back a week later. He's like, are you sure? Uh, <laughs> the 550 and you can have whatever title you want. And I was like, oh, okay, well, yeah, maybe I should do that. So I, I think I took co-executive producer. I, I was some crazy nice. title that I ended up taking, supervisor <laughs> producer or something crazy like that. I was 21 years old. Um, I, I may have also been a first assistant director. I think I literally just looked at what like, the coolest titles were and just grabbed them because he, he had already taken executive producer. And I moved um, back down to Pennsylvania to, to shoot this History Channel special. And while, then right after that, we did a a and &E biography of Robert E. Lee, and we were shooting on the Gettysburg battlefield during one of the reenactments. And one of the cinematographers that we were working with said to me, Piper, what are you going to do next? You know, and I was like, what do you mean next? Like, isn't this what we do? And he was like, well, this project's going to be over in like a week. What are you going to do next? And I had Ulysses to, S. Grant. I hadn't even <laughs> thought about it. I was like, oh my God. And he says, well, I don't know if you've ever thought about living in DC, but I live there and I know this woman who runs a production company and she doesn't probably have a job for you, but she knows everybody in town. So if you're ever interested, come on down, I'll hook you up. So I didn't have any better leads. So I went down there to DC after I was done and I met with this woman, Rosemary Reed at Double R Productions. And she offered me a job that day and I didn't know better. It, it was $650 a week. So I was like, oh, I just got a raise. This is amazing. So I moved down to DC and I lived in DC for a year. Um, I, I would do, um, a lot of political work, a lot of public service announcements. Um, and then they got, um, they got this, uh, license to do Rap City Japan, right? Produce it out of house by BET, which was of course based down there. And Rosemary walked into the bullpen one day and said, does anyone know anything about rap music? And I was like, I mean, I kind of know a little <laughs> bit about rap music. And she's like, great. You're the producer of Rap City Japan. So here I was, I was, I think I was 22 at this point, And now I was the producer of Rap City Japan. And I was doing these public service announcements and all of this. And it was, you know, really funny. My, my best uh, Rap City Japan story, which you can cut out of this if you'd like to, but was um, we had this host, her name was Mommy. And she would, we, we'd shoot all these wraparounds with her 
but we didn't have any money for a translator. So I would have no idea what she was saying. <laughs> so, you know, we would go and shoot something in Brooklyn or wherever it was. And all I would care about was, did she hit the time that she needed to hit? Like, was she 27 seconds or less? Cause that's the whole we had. Oh my the videos. But I had no idea. She could have been saying anything, you know? So as long as she hit 26 seconds or less, I was like, click. Yep. Great. Moving on. That's hilarious. Uh, that was the crazy times of our lives. So, but I was, I was getting bored, right? It was one of those jobs where if you were, as long as you were there a minute before Rosemary showed up and a minute after she left, you were going to have that job forever. And I was like, oh my God, there's got to be something more to this. So I started thinking about who are the people doing the things that I'm interested in? I remember my dad telling me like, well, who's doing what you want to do? Yeah. Great advice. Um, and you know, back then it, there was no Google to go and like right. do research and stuff like that. But I saw this show that was on CNBC at the time called the Olympic show. And I always loved the Olympics. I was a big sports nerd growing up and I love storytelling, even though that's so cliche now. And to me, the Olympics was the perfect kind of meat, uh, meat of those two things. And so I just looked at the very first name that popped up on the Olympic show and it was uh, executive producer, Lisa Lacks. And I was like, I'm going to write Lisa Lacks a, a, a letter, a cold letter. She doesn't know me. I don't know her. So I wrote her a cold letter. And Lisa made the same mistake that Tom Stathakis made however many years before, which was she wrote me back. <laughs> and she said, stay in touch. And so that's what I did. So every time I would be out on a shoot, whether it was for Rap City or for any of the public service announcements or whatever that I was doing, I would get a postcard at whatever airport I was at. And I would send it to Lisa. I'm in Jackson, Mississippi. I'm in Lima, Ohio. I'm wherever the heck I was to make her think that I had this like career where I was running around the world and producing all this stuff, even though I was just a 22 year old punk kid at the time. And I just would keep writing her and writing and writing her and she wouldn't write me back, but I figured she had to be getting them. I mean, she got my first letter, so she has to be getting these postcards. And then one day she called me and she said, are you interested in a job at NBC Olympics? Or are you still interested? She said, and I said, said yeah. <laughs> and she said, can you come up tomorrow and meet with this guy, David Michaels? He's the senior producer of the Olympics and he's looking for a new PA, AP, whatever it was. And I said, sure. So I took the day off from work and I drove up to New York and I met with David and his feature producer, Kathy Farrell. And they didn't hire me. <laughs> they called me up a couple what? of days later and they said, we, we went with somebody else. They had more experience. You know, and listen, I had no experience really. I was still a really young kid and I was doing public service announcements. I mean, they, they were doing the Olympic features. It was well, what about Rap City Japan? I know. Didn't that count for anything? So <laughs> about three weeks later, I get a call from David and he goes, are you still interested? And I was like, uh, yeah, I thought you hired somebody else. He goes, yeah, that, I, 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 I hated that person. <laughs> are you ready to come on? And, he, and he, I was like, sure. And he's like, but you have to promise me you're going to work your ass off. And I was like, oh, of course, of course, I'm going to do everything. He's like, all right, I'll see you in two weeks. And he hung up the phone. And so then I went in and I gave my two weeks notice and I moved up to New York and I started working at NBC Olympics. Um, wow. So that was the first time. What year was that? That was 1999. Okay. Yeah, June of 99. So we were just leading into the preparations for the Sydney Olympic Games. For Sydney. And um, so I was a full-time uh, kind of employee at NBC Olympics uh, through Sydney and then through Salt Lake City. Um, I had gotten the opportunity to move up uh, and become a feature producer leading into Salt Lake City. So I was like a 23, 24 year old feature producer who they were sending to China for 11 days and Russia for eight days. And uh, I was getting to, to basically travel the world uh, on NBC's dime. And when we weren't shooting Olympic features, I was working on sports. So I would be doing 
you know, the Breeders' Cup or the Triple Crown of Horse Racing. I would be doing uh, gymnastics national championships. I'd be doing the Gravity Games, which was kind of NBC's version of the X Games. Uh, you know, I was just doing little events here and there whenever they popped up on the sporting side. So I was traveling really 250, 270 days a year, spending most of my weekends in a trailer in a parking lot with aluminum foil over the windows and just coming home for a day to kind of unpack a bag and repack a bag. I was the greatest roommate you could ever have in New York because I was just never, ever there. Um, did you love every second of it? I did. Yeah. I, I don't think I knew better. I didn't know how lucky I was. You know, the, most of the feature producers were older than I was. Um, and so I had been given really this pretty amazing guy, David Michaels, um, who kind of took me under his wing and decided I was going to, he was going to mentor me. And I don't think I knew how lucky I was for that to have happened to me that I was kind of plucked out of a group. Um, so I think there were times where I was like, Oh my God, this is so amazing. And there were other times where I was like, what, this is just normal. Right. Like I didn't, I didn't know, um, that it was weird for, for somebody to hand you a envelope with, you know, $15,000 cash. And then you get on a plane, uh, to China for 18 days and they're like, come back with receipts, you know, like things like that. <laughs> and you're going there with some of the best film crews and cinematographers in the world, Scott Duncan and Ken Wu and some of the very best people in the industry. And, and then you're editing these pieces together with some of the very best editors in the world, right? You know, Todd Kreitz and Sean Foley and Bob Barzik and the best people in the world. And so they're making me look great, right? The best images edited by the best editors. And so they, they made me look like I was a star for a couple of years. And you won a bunch of Emmys I saw in your bio. Yeah, we and listen, they were team Emmys. You know, when you work on the Olympics, it's a hundred people, thousands of people working mm -hmm. on those things. And so I was lucky enough to be a part of teams that won a lot of those. We worked on the Iron Man. There was a great team that worked on the Iron Man. Great storytelling during that. Um, did some doc, did a documentary after 9-11 with Mark Levy and the and the NBC feature team um, that won an Emmy and, you know, really owe it to them because Mark was so fantastic. And then of course, all the work that David and Billy, Billy Matthews and the entire team on the Olympics would do each year. Uh, I was really fortunate to be a part of those teams. And, and then David started, you know, I, I had been doing these features, these 90 second, two minute, two and a half minute features. And I was starting to get itchy. He, he was starting to realize that all of my features kept getting longer and longer and more <laughs> And more epic and at a time when actually we were told to get shorter and shorter right that we wanted more live tv and less of these like extended features and so i was getting itchy and and uh david's um david's uh brother is al michaels and al's i was wondering what there was connection to asylum okay yes so so david put me in touch with steve and said you know steve is doing this show called beyond the glory which was a long-form sports documentary show for fox sports at the time um, and David was working on a couple of them in his downtime between NBC events. And so he kind of brought me on as his number two on a couple of these, Oksana Bayul. And then we did a big two hour one with Mike Tyson. And then Steve was nice enough to say, well, hey, you know, you could probably do some of these on your own. And I wasn't working full time at NBC anymore. So I started doing these things for Steve. It wasn't actually Asylum at the time. It was still called Red Skies Entertainment or whatever it was. And um Steve gave me the opportunity along with Frank Sinton, who was there at the time before he went over to A. Smith, of working on these documentaries. Um, and I did one on Ray Lewis and one on Anna Kornikova and just a couple of these Beyond the Glories. And I started really liking this, oh my God, doing 42 minutes of content instead of doing 42 seconds of content was a big deal to me. And I love that sort of storytelling. And then when Jonathan Koch came over and it was now Asylum, Jonathan started selling entertainment shows. 
right? He was selling pilots to Wii and to TLC and to Lifetime and all these different places. But Steve and Frank didn't really have a Rolodex of entertainment producers at the time. So Steve just came up to me one day and said, do you want to do this pilot for TLC? And I was like, well, I guess it's got to be the same thing, right? Um, so <laughs> I just said, yes, I, I didn't know any better. I was what, 26, 27, maybe years old. And now I was the showrunner of a pilot for cable, you know, and then what was it? Do you remember? It was called the gift. It was called the gift and it was about organ donation. Um, and a really powerful, you know, um, story where you, you get, you know, obviously, uh, someone's family member dies and all of their different organs are going to different places and you're tracking them. It was, it was really great, um, show. I really enjoyed doing it. So that just led me to doing more and more cable stuff with them. I, I was still doing. Did you move sport. out to LA? Sorry. No, I was still living in New York. And oh, okay. I was still, a lot of my time was still doing sports stuff with NBC as a freelancer. So Got I was it. still kind of doing the same events I was doing for NBC before. I still did the Athens Olympi uh, Olympic Games and I did Torino in 2006, which would have been my last one. So I was still doing sports stuff, but now I was also doing this longer form entertainment stuff as well as a showrunner. And so I was kind of juggling my time between both of those things. Um, and then uh, in the end of 2006, uh, I got an opportunity uh, to work on a pilot for ABC. And it was the first time I had ever worked on a pilot for a broadcast network. Um, and it was called Story of My Life. And it was uh, about someone who was diagnosed with a terminal illness. And you were watching them kind of a live life like you're dying sort of pilot of what would, what would, how would you live your life if you were told you had only 18 months to live? And so we embedded with someone who um, was given a terminal diagnosis and now all of a sudden wanted to do all the things with their children and with their family and with, you know, for themselves um, that they thought they would always have time to do, but now realize they didn't have time to do. And I was supposed to be the number two on the project and the lead on the project was supposed to be a gentleman by the name of Terry Wrong, who was based out of the uh, ABC News long form unit in New York. Right. Um, but they, they couldn't make the deal work with Terry, but I had met with him once on the project. And so I ended up doing the project by myself. Um, it, it didn't get picked up because, I mean, I don't know how you would ever have done a series of this because the episodes were always sad in the end. I mean, I mean, way around it. So, but I remember after that going to meet with Terry because I was impressed by him. You know, Terry, anybody who knows Terry knows he's like, He's a very one of a kind character and uh, you either kind of love him or hate him probably, but I was super intrigued by him. Um, and he said some stuff to me that at the time I was like, wow, he's kind of a jerk. But the more, the more I thought about it, I was like, wow, yeah, maybe, maybe there's something to this. I remember at one point during my first meeting, he said, Piper, if we work together, I'm going to have to tear you down and build you back up again because you're filled with bad habits. And I'm like, you haven't even seen anything I've done. Like, what <laughs> wow. And, and I was, you know, winning awards and I'm like, what is, I'm great at what I do. What are you talking about? But it haunted me that he had said this. Like, I was like, what does he see that I don't see? So he was about to do this show called Hopkins where he yeah, had done this. I watched show, it. Yeah. Back in 2006 we, or 2007, uh, he was embedded in Johns Hopkins yeah. Medical Center for six months and he wanted me to be a part of that team, you know, come on board. So, uh, he offered me like a good $1,500 less than another job had offered me. But I was like, again, haunted by these words that he had said. And I realized that what he was really offering me was to work on the most verite piece of programming ever and have it yeah. air on a broadcast network on Thursday nights. Like it was crazy to be doing something like that. It was so different than everything I had ever done. And I was like, 
this is the road less traveled, right? I could keep doing sports. I could keep doing some of these cable shows, but there's no other show out there like this one. So who cares if I'm making a little less money? So I took a full-time job at ABC News and I started working on this program. I moved to Baltimore with Terry and Brad Hebert and the rest of the crew. And we had full access to Johns Hopkins Medical Center. I had like a key card that could swipe me into operating rooms and I had a trauma pager that would go off in the middle of the night and I'd be looking at it like I was a doctor trying to decide whether I wanted to go in and grab the camera and film something or not. It was just an incredible experience. The most incredible part of it is that while we shot for six months, a little bit more than six months, we edited it for a year. Like where else in the world can you edit something, craft something the way that, that Terry does? And so I got to work at ABC for the better part of, of two years. We did Hopkins, obviously, and then I did a couple other shows while I was there, like Medical Mysteries and a couple other things. Uh, what Would You Do, which is their great show, uh, oh, yeah. long-form unit, which was what a was lot the, of- What was the, I don't want to say craziest, but what was the most impactful thing that you ever saw in the time filming Hopkins? Oh, wow. I have a lot of answers to that, but I, I will say this. Um, I got a, I, Brad A. Bear and I were, were kind of co-executive producers on the project. So we kind of shared the trauma pager, right? Um, so some one week he would have it, one week I would have it. And the week I had it, it, it went off one night and uh, you had gotten to know what all the codes were. And so this one said potential brain bleed uh, on a, on a um, pediatric patient that was being flown in uh on the helicopter on the chopper so when you see that you you grab the camera and you start heading in this was maybe three o'clock in the morning or whatever it was and so we went and we shot um this little boy coming off of the chopper and coming into um the emergency department and they were doing a lot of checks on him and of course we're not able to film unless we have a signed waiver right um, so you're able to shoot some things as long as it's not recognizable, as long as you couldn't ever figure out who this person was by anything that you're shooting. Um, but when you when the baby is so small, there's really no way to shoot them without shooting their face, without shooting recognizable markers. And so I had to call the parents uh, because we wanted to film this. It was a pretty crazy story. Now, the parents, think about if you're a parent, you've just seen your baby in, under two years old be taken off by a helicopter, you then get in your car and you're driving as fast as you can to the hospital, but you can never go as fast as the helicopter. And your phone rings and it's some guy saying, hi, I'm from ABC News and blah, blah, blah. So before I make that phone call, you really have to take a deep breath and say, how am I going to have a conversation? I wasn't up at the time and kind of lucky that I wasn't a parent at the time because if I was, I don't know that I would have had the guts to make right. that call. But I, I called the mom and she picked up and I said, hi, I'm Alex Piper from ABC News. We're filming a show. Your son just arrived. Your son's doing fine, looking good. That Everything's under control. But I just want you to know about the project that we're doing and, and how scared you are right now is probably how scared a lot of people are when they're racing to the hospital and their kids are going through this. And wouldn't you like it to, to, to wouldn't you like a show to be out there that could tell people what you're going through and make people understand that it's okay, that it's going to be okay. Um, make people feel a little bit more at ease. And somehow magically she trusted us and she said, sure, you can film. And so we started filming and then, you know, here we had been with her son for, I don't know, maybe 90 minutes um, before she even got there. Um, and then she busts in and we're already there and, 
you know, we've never met her. At some point I have to like put, push pause on the camera cause it's all one man band. I'm shooting it, you know, myself or whatever. And then I'm like, hi, I'm Alex. I'm the guy you talked to on the phone. Like it was just, cra- you know, crazy mm. that we were doing this. And by the way, that would happen every single night in the emergency department, you know, as different cases came in, the ambulance would get there faster than the family ever could. And so the family would walk in, all they want is an update on how their, their child is doing or how their brother is doing or how their dad's doing or whatever it is. And all of a sudden you would have to walk up to them and say, Hey, would, would you be open to us filming this? And what was always amazing and what makes, makes me so impressed by the team even to this day is that, you know, our consent rate was over 90%. And it really shows the the heart of the people who were involved that they could see that there could be a bigger calling for what they were going through, that the pain they were feeling right now could actually do some good for somebody else if they saw it and they, and they, and they saw these sort of things. So uh, it was such a powerful experience for me. Um, and there were some really, really great stories, but the one thing I will tell you about living life in a hospital for six and a half months is that you realize that Um, there's no better place for storytelling, right? Because there are people walking the halls of that hospital who are having the absolute worst day of their life. And there are people walking around the halls of the hospital who are having the absolute best day of their life, right? And so that sort of um, width on the spectrum of emotions uh, makes for some uh, pretty amazing storytelling. And Terry went on to do you know, obviously Boston Med and New York Med, and and he's, you know, he's best in class when it comes to the story storytelling. But he did a dating show too for ABC that I watched. Yeah, absolutely, right, right before, right before I got there, they did that. Yeah, Terry has just a his own signature brand of storytelling. And by the way, he was right. By the time I left, yeah, what he, was your bad habit? Who knows what my bad habit? <laughs> you was, still don't know. Uh, what I can tell you is he did break me down, and he did get me to start over. I think what if you were to ask him what my bad habit was, he would say you're hiding behind all this beautiful 35 millimeter mm. film footage and and this these perfect music soundtrack cues from a movie and all of these sort of things, you're hiding behind that and you're not letting the story be up front, right? You're letting the images or the sounds be up front instead of the words. And he was all about the words. He didn't care about your music cue. You know, in fact, he didn't yeah. want to have a music cue. He didn't want to have a host telling you what, what you were supposed to feel. He was going to try to make you feel that way through the story that he was telling you. And so it was such a valuable lesson to me. And actually, when I think about now, some of the stuff that we do at YouTube, it really probably resonates even more. So interesting. Well, we're going so long, but I feel like you No, it's great. You could, I could listen to you talk all day. Um, <laughs> I guess I just want to try to fast forward a little bit to figure sure. out like when you moved to LA and then how you ended up at Fox, if we could kind of like no try problem. to condense that a little bit so that we can get the yeah. full arc. So after I left ABC, I just went back to being a freelance showrunner. And then Steve Michaels um, at Asylum, who I had now not worked for for a little while, it had been like maybe three years since we had worked together, he called me up and he said, hey, really, I'd like you to come and do some stuff with me. They had just been given a couple of the 30 for 30s, including the very first one for ESPN, where Peter Berg was directing. And he was like, I really want you to to be the EP on that with Pete. And and I was like, listen, Steve, I don't know that I want to just do one-off projects with you because I was having to live out in LA for big chunks of time. And I had just gotten married and I was thinking like, my wife's never going to let me just live in the Oakwood on Barham for a <laughs> time. Like that wasn't what my life was going to look like. We were trying to start to have a family. And he said, all right, well, what would it take? And I was like, well, is there a bigger job you can give me? And he said, well, what if you come and run unscripted for us? And that sounded good because I was assuming, oh, that means I'm going to be off the road a little bit more. Like I'm not going to have to go and be the showrunner of all these shows. 
And um, my wife was uh, pregnant with our first and I was like, okay, this is a perfect time to do it. So somehow I talked her into leaving New York um, and moving out to Los Angeles. We figured it was just going to be something we did for a couple of years. <laughs> Um, which of course I think a lot of people end up doing that. It's always a short period. <laughs> exactly. So I moved out in, um, January of 2010 and became the head of unscripted for asylum at the time. Um, and I was there for four years. This was yeah about, uh, three and a half years. I should say three and a half years. And then asylum sold to legendary, right. Uh, in the end of 2013, and I think it was the right time at that point to go and try something new. Uh, you know, we were having a lot more conversations about EBITDA than we were about, <laughs> right. about creative at that point. And so I think- One was, day I'll understand what that means. Yeah, I still don't. I still don't. <laughs> um, but they sold the company and they, you know, Jonathan and Steve really earned every dollar that they made off of that company because they worked so hard to build it. And they're pretty amazing guys who I yeah. uh, love and adore to this day. Um, but I was starting to look around. I was poking around. A lot of other production companies were talking to me about coming there. And I had, I actually had been pretty far down the road on a, uh, on a kind of a taking over a production company here in, uh, in LA. And then all of a sudden I got a call from a headhunter saying, Hey, Simon Andre has just come in and to replace, uh, Mike Darnell at Fox and he's looking to staff up and would you come in and meet with him? And I didn't know Simon at all. I'd never met him before in my life. I think I maybe had pitched to him once when he was a discovery, but nothing memorable. And I was like, well, I'm kind of down the road with this other offer. And they said, well, all you have to do is meet with him. Like it's take an hour out of your day. If you, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but if it does, who knows? So I came into Fox. I remember I met with Simon in the office next to Mike's Mike's Mike Darnell's old office. Cause they were still cleaning out Mike's stuff. Okay. And, um, it was empty. It was just two chairs in an empty office. It was so surreal. And I was supposed to meet with Simon for like 30 minutes, kind of like this podcast. It went 90 minutes. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, hey, when you click, and, you click. Yeah. And at the end of it, he said, nice to meet you. And the next day I got a call from the headhunter and she said, he wants to hire you. And I had never worked at a network. I'd never been on the buying side before. Right. And I had never really worked at a, at a network level before. Everything I had done was, was, was cable, you know, in the, at least in the entertainment space, right. um, other than that one pilot I had done for ABC back in the day. So I didn't really understand all of it, but I was like, this feels like the thing you do, right? Uh, if you're going to try it out, you, you should try this out. So I took the offer. And I started, Lisa Levinson had started the same day as I had. Um, I love Lisa so much. And Amy Cohen what had, had been a holdover from, um, from Mike's team. And she was so fantastic. And so I walked into like an absolutely great team. Simon was so special. And Lisa and I were kind of learning the ropes together. And, and Amy was the one who actually knew uh, how to do it amazingly. Of course. <laughs> Thank um, God someone did. So, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a great experience. Um, and I was there for... A uh, little five and a half years at Fox. Uh, a couple different regime changes in there, as as everybody knows. Um, you know, both in terms of who I directly reported to. Um, Corey Henson came on board, and you know, I just adore her. And then Rob Wade came on, and, and he was uh, fantastic, obviously. And then, um, but even at the higher level, going from Kevin Riley into um, Dana and Gary taking over, and then eventually, eventually uh, Charlie Collier at the very tail end of, of my time there. So it was a really interesting time to be at Fox because, you know, the broadcast model changed so much, even in that little five-year period 
of what I was telling people in 2014 when I was making my sales pitch as to why you should do a show at Fox was so different than what I was able to tell them in 2018, 2019, as I was making my sales pitch as to why you should do a show at Fox. So it was, it was, a, it was probably the biggest learning curve I've ever had in my career, um, which is saying a lot because I've had a lot of weird shifts along the way. Um, but it was an experience that I'll never forget. What was the weirdest thing again, coming from producing your whole career and then being in this corporate structure with meetings and being a buyer (laughs) and taking pitches from you, essentially who you were before that, what -hmm. was the hardest adjustment? The hardest adjustment for me was, um, when you, when I was running a production company or overseeing a slate at a production company, there was a sense of urgency to every, everything we did, right? You were trying to stay on budget. You were trying to stay on time. You, you were running this team and you were just, everything was, Oh, you gotta get it done right now. (laughs) And at times you, you had this, this make it happen or get it done sort of mentality to such an extent that that intensity would, would, would bubble up. Right. And people get mad at you, but then you get in Maybe if you didn't like that person, you didn't have to worry about it because they were freelancers and they moved on and you didn't have to worry about the long term. You were always looking at the short term, just getting to a certain milepost along the way, um, just trying to get a second season of a show or a third season of a show. It could make the difference between your production company, you know, having hitting payroll or not hitting payroll, right? And so when I got to Fox, I had that same intensity still. I was still acting like I was a showrunner or I was running a production company. And so I would give notes on cuts and they would really cut deep. Like I was giving stupid notes, like notes. That would, <laughs> You're giving like, producer notes. I was giving producer notes and I would get on calls and whenever I would feel like a producer was trying to pull a fast one on us, I would, I would feel like I was my job to, you know, uh, shine a light on their hypocrisy and all that. Like I was just acting, <laughs> uh, like a clown really. And, uh, I was pissing people off. You know, that's really what it was. People were saying like, who the hell is this guy? I never even heard of him until he got this job. <laughs> and now he's giving me these stupid notes and he's, he's calling me out on the phone. And it was just like a nightmare. Right. And I would sit there in pitches and people would pitch me shows and I would just shred them in the pitch. Right. Cause I would be like, well, that's not going to work. And that's not going to work. And, and no one wanted to pitch to me. And I was like, why? I don't know why I'm trying my hardest. And they're just like, why would I ever want to spend a minute with this clown? Um, and I, I got to give Corey Henson a lot of the credit for that. When she first got to Fox, she pulled me into a room and, and she didn't know me at all. We had had no interaction before she got there. And she said, listen, Alex, I've now spent a couple of weeks with you. You're really smart. Um, you got to stop acting like you have to prove it to people. Hmm. Um, this is a long-term gain and you have to build relationships and we want people to keep coming back with their ideas. And <laughs> you know, put yourself in their shoes. You've been in their shoes. It should be relatively easy for you to put yourself into it. Think about the relationships you had with network executives and what they were like. And she was absolutely right. And she, I was like, but in a pitch, you know, I want to show them why it doesn't work. And she's like, I understand, but maybe that's not the place to do it. Or maybe you have to frame it differently. So I actually did start framing it differently. I started doing things where I would say, cause, cause this is the truth. If you pitch to me, you pitch your show to me uh, as a network executive. I now have to go pitch it to somebody else. But you're not there during that pitch. So yeah. really what you're supposed to be doing during the initial pitch is arming me with all of the information that I'm going to need to be the best advocate for you possible in the next room, right? And so I would say to people, I'm asking you these questions because I want to have your answers when I go to the next room. 
I don't want to have to make up the answers. I want to, I want to know what you say to those questions because those are the questions I know I'm going to be asked. And so arm me with the right information. Well, once I just twisted it that way, everyone was like, okay, he is asking me tough questions and that is a little bit annoying, but if it's making it better for him, it's making it better for our project as well, right? Because then he can better advocate for it. And that was just a key little difference that allowed me to all of a sudden have a much more comfortable experience, whether it was uh, doing pitches, giving notes, doing anything like that. Um, and, and it took me a while to grow into the job, really just to grow up, to mature, to not feel because, because honestly, well, I get I, used I, to that too, that you yeah. not rule that you not new role. Yeah. But I, I also felt like I had something to prove, mm-hmm. you know, I had never worked at a, at a buyer and I had never worked at a broadcaster. So I felt like people are looking at me and, and have to be wondering whether I can do this job or not. So right. I was trying so hard to prove that I could do it that I was actually proving that I couldn't do it. Right. I was that's trying a good to lesson. I think yeah. for everybody, like no matter what side you're on, I think that's a really good lesson. All right. So wrapping up one last question, yeah, cause please. a lot of producers listen to this. What should producers think about in terms of pitching YouTube? What do you want to see based on what you just told yeah. us? What should they watch out for? Cause I yeah. imagine maybe it's a friendlier room now with you, but you're going to see right through <laughs> bullshit. So what should people know? Um, that's a great question. Uh, I'll try to keep it as short as possible because my spiel can go on for a while. I was going to say, what's the spiel? <laughs> you know, here's what I would say. This is, this is what I've been telling people a lot recently. YouTube is like Manhattan. Let's use that as an example, right? In a lot of ways, Manhattan is just a collection of neighborhoods. If you got dropped in, this, in, in midtown Manhattan and you walk 20 blocks north, 20 blocks south, five blocks east, five blocks west, you're in a different neighborhood. And each neighborhood looks different, right? There are different uh, socioeconomic makeup, different racial makeup, different interests, everything, right? And so in a lot of ways, that's what YouTube is, right? There are people who are coming to YouTube just for gaming or just for music or just for beauty or just for vloggers or whatever it is, right? And so some of those people are just coming for that little genre. And then once they've kind of bounced around in that genre for a little while, they leave, okay? And so in a lot of ways, at YouTube Originals, part of our job is to super serve the needs of those neighborhoods, of those little genres. So we make shows with a beauty influencer, we make shows with a gamer, we make shows with musicians, all of those different things because we're trying to shine a light on all of the different neighborhoods that make up the YouTube global mosaic, let's say, right? Mm -hmm. But then there's also another part of our job at YouTube Originals where we are asked to bring the community together, right? There are times in which you don't just live on the Upper West Side or in the Lower Mm -hmm. East Side or in Park Slope, there are times where you now are a New Yorker, right? And those are normally big cultural events, sporting events, um, New Year's Eve, uh, times of trouble, whatever it is, where you feel like you're a part of that larger community. Those are those tent pole events. So in a lot of ways, I'm, we are doing like a little bit of a franchise strategy to super serve the needs of those neighborhoods, while also keeping an eye out for big global opportunities that bring people under the tent um, as, as this 2 billion unique user YouTube global community that is so incredible because we live in front of the paywall. You know, a lot of our competitors talk about having a global reach, but so many of them live behind a paywall. And so it's not the same when you, you know, when I look at India and I look at Brazil and I know that those are two of our biggest markets for YouTube, not a lot of people are signing up for these subscription services that are the equivalent of 10, 15, 20 American dollars, they're coming to YouTube instead. And that's what's exciting mm-hmm. to me, even with the proliferation of these SVODs, is that YouTube's still gonna be a part of the conversation because yeah. you're free. So no matter how many subscriptions you decide to have, YouTube is still gonna be a part of your conversation. And so um, it's a really exciting time. But again, it comes back to that authenticity because 
that the one tough thing to understand about YouTube for an outsider is that everything lives on somebody's channel. So it's not as easy as just making a good show and bringing it to us. I have, I have great shows that come in the front door every day, really shows that I want to watch, generally want to watch. And if in any other job I would want to buy, um, but because there's no clear home for them, there's no clear channel for it to sit on. Um, it just doesn't work as a YouTube show. Um, because search and discovery is one of the biggest problems at YouTube, right? We're the world's largest video library. I always like to say when we put a show up there, it's like pouring a can of diet Coke into the ocean, right? It just gets washed away unless people can find it. And I'll give the Justin Bieber example, uh, Justin Bieber, the title of that series was seasons, Mm -hmm. right? But nobody knows that. What people know is that Justin Bieber was doing a YouTube show. And if they wanted to find it, they'd go to YouTube. They'd type Justin Bieber into the search engine. And that would drop them on Justin's page. And there would see, seasons would be. And the reason we know that is we can actually look at what's typed into the search engine. And the percentage of people typing Justin Bieber on the day of the launch versus the, type, the, the percentage of people typing seasons, it, it's not even close. There was like four people who typed seasons. <laughs> right. right? And there was, you know, four million people who were typing Justin Bieber in. And so... That's where it, it's important for us to be able to find where these shows are. And that's why it's great to have a clear home for it, a clear host where it's a first person show um, where you know this is that person's show. You know John Krasinski's show, right? Whether you knew it was some good news or not, you know John Krasinski and you can type it in and you're going to find it on YouTube. Yep. It's so fun too. Very good for these times. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, Alex, I, I don't know what to say. This has been so great. I have a million more things to ask you, but it's... I'll already, always come back if you have more questions. Yeah, it would be great to do a part two. I'm starting to have recurring guests now that I've been doing this a while and it's been really fun. Thank you so much. And I also know how busy you are. So I appreciate you giving me all this time. And oh my I think God, thank that, you for having uh, me. I really appreciate it. It'd be great. Our, our community will like it. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. All right. Thank you so much. 